I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, the news about the news. If you believe that an informed electorate is a better electorate, that a smarter state is a better state, then a core component of our democracy is a fully functioning, firing on all cylinders, free, fair, and independent press, a reliable source of reporting on what government is doing and not doing to you and for you. The men and women of print, broadcast, and digital news organizations around the country and across Texas confront enormous challenges today. Chief among them, historic levels of public distrust, official condemnation, and economic distress. But they're working as hard as they can to do the best they can at their three main jobs. To search for the truth and tell people what they found, to hold public officials and taxpayer-funded institutions accountable, and to tee up for all of us in our busy lives the things important enough for us to stop and pay attention to. Those jobs matter at all times but especially in a legislative year when the business of a state with nearly 29 million people and the 10th largest economy in the world is transacted over a blink-and-you-miss-it five months. When access to basic information is a necessary condition for citizen engagement. Unfortunately, there's a much smaller press corps at the Capitol than there was 25 years ago. There are fewer venues for the work of those still around, and there is less of an appetite at many of the venues that remain for this kind of journalism. Fortunately, there are ambitious outliers with a persistent commitment to the public interest, and the leaders of two such news orgs are my guests this week. Mike Wilson is now in his fourth year as the editor of the Dallas Morning News, the biggest daily newspaper brand in Texas. Debbie Hyatt is general manager of KUT, Austin's iconic public radio station, and formerly edited the Austin American Statesman. Given the average age of their colleagues these days, they're among the grizzled veterans of our business, but they have their feet planted firmly in the modern world of disruption, innovation, iteration, and revenue generation, something editorial leaders could one day shield their eyes from, but not now. They understand their watchdog role, and they diligently devote time, energy, and resources, both human and financial, to serving their communities. They're no one's enemy. They're not fake. They're well-meaning civic actors. But they're also clear-eyed about how much harder it is to live up to their awesome responsibilities. As they told me when we sat down on the morning of April 4th, day 87 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, joining forces with universities statewide to identify solutions to fragmentation and costs in healthcare. More at standingwithtexas.com. And by Texas State Technical College, offering 60-plus industry-driven high-tech programs. Learn more about them at tstc.edu slash 86th session. And the Texas Hospital Association, Texas hospitals are at the forefront of improving maternal health, leading efforts to improve patient outcomes. See their priorities for a healthier Texas at THA.org slash maternal health.
Do you think the public has any idea what the hell is going on in state government? We, we've just had this amazing news week in Texas at the legislature where we've had what may prove to have been a historic vote on public school finance reform. The details are many and complex, but the public has an interest in knowing this stuff. Do they even know what the hell just happened, do you think? I think largely not. Um, that, you know, uh, broadly speaking, much of the public is worried about putting food on the table and keeping a job or getting a job or getting married or whatever they're thinking about. And there's a, a small but influential, you know, group of Texans who are, who are always paying close attention. Um, uh, but I think that the, you know, people's knowledge of state government is, you know, reflected in any kind of cocktail party conversation where everybody's got an idea about national politics and is willing to share that. But do they know who their representative is? Do they really know what's happening in Austin on a given day, um, I get less of a sense that they, uh, that they do. Right. Um, Over a cocktail, they'd rather talk about Dirk Nowitzki than Dennis Bonin. Well, who wouldn't, but yeah. So well, I me, yeah. uh, I would, <laughs> right, I, right. my hand, let the record show my hand is up. Uh, Debbie, do you have a sense, either through the public radio door or through the door of your old job, that the public has any sense at all of the stakes they have in the outcomes of these fights, let alone that these fights are even going on? No, I think um, if you spend any time reporting around these issues, you see a lot of the same people coming to the table and coming to the hearings, coming to the public meetings, whether it's, you know, Austin City Council or state hearings. And and I, I think that if people really understood those stakes as well as they should, they, they would be, more they would be there. there. Yeah. Right. So it's essentially a small group of people talking to a small group of people, state of 29 million people almost going to 54 million people. I mean, this is the persistent fear, is it not? That as the population of the state grows, we're still going to have this small subset of a small subset paying attention and a small subset of a small subset deciding for all of the rest of us, right, Mike, how these issues are resolved. Think- it's, it's despite your best efforts. I went and looked at the Dallas Morning News front page today, and I went and looked at the KUT homepage yep. today. It's not that you're not covering this stuff. You've got multiple stories under the Texas legislature header. You have coverage... Uh, by your Claire McInerney, your mm-hmm. public education reporter, and you have some of our uh, reporting on right. your site. Thank you for your partnership. The fact is you are covering this stuff. You are presenting it, right? Yeah, we That's are. Right. We it's, are. It's despite your best efforts that people may not know about it. That's right. And I think you know the, the issue you're talking about plays out for us very much locally where we know from research that engagement in Dallas's local elections is at the bottom of the list of something like 254 American cities in terms of voter turnout. Right. You have a mayor's race coming up in a couple of weeks. Right. You've got some 8,000 candidates. Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> mo- mo- I, I'm one of the few people in Dallas not running for mayor. Yeah. Uh, but So there are a lot of people running for mayor, and, and we are endeavoring to get people in Dallas to care about this and to raise our... You know, you can get you can get elected to a city council seat in Dallas with 1,000 votes or something. And right. we, we, we Ninth largest get people city engaged. in the country. Yeah. Um, the person who runs the city of Dallas, whether it's uh, Mike Rawlings or uh, Tom Leppard or Laura Miller or Ron Kirk, is a national figure by virtue of that person's ascension to that job. I mean, look at what happened with Lori Lightfoot in um, Chicago, third largest city in the country, elected a, an African-American woman, uh, openly gay, the largest city in the country to be run by a black woman, to be run by an openly gay elected official. 
enormous consequences for the present and the future of that city. The Dallas mayor is an enormously important figure. Uh, Debbie, all the years you ran the statesman, what Mike just described, people who don't turn out in these municipal elections oh, are yeah. electing the person or people who lead the 11th largest city in the country. Yeah, right? and, th and that is in a city that is known for a level of engagement, civic engagement that's higher than some other right. cities. keep Austin pissed. Yeah. Everybody here is <laughs> angry right. all the time, and that's right. typically the way that they get motivated to be out and... <laughs> But again, as you point out, at a city council meeting, like at the legislature, it is the same universe of people who sure. show up to fulminate and, you know, protest, mm -hmm. and, and it's finite. The number of people is finite. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do about, about that fact. I mean, this is really gets back to the question of whether people are engaged or not and the role that you all have in engaging them or not. The problem is not that you're not telling them what's going on. The problem is that or that you're not doing enough to tell them. The problem is that you do tell them and yet they still don't care, Debbie, right? Well, I, I would say that, um, yes, we're telling them, but we're not always telling them in a way that is engaging to them. Um, and I, I'll admit that as a, you know, longtime newspaper reporter and now um, being, you know, involved with public radio. There was the Pew Research Center report that came out, I think, last week one of the things it talked about was um, how important it was to the people that were surveyed that there was they felt a community connection with their local news, um, the local news media. And I think that comes from being out and being engaging and having events and doing the sorts of things that... Um, that really pull people into a more active role. It's not a, enough to just report the news. That's right. They, yeah. they um, you know, if we give them an opportunity to be passive about it by just reading it. They'll take or, that opportunity. Or just yeah. hearing it, then they'll take that opportunity. But if we work on ways to bring them into the circle, I think they will, you know, more of them will come. You know, that's, that's actually one of the realities of our job that no one cares about but us. We talk about it is that the job of being the editor of a newspaper or the general manager of a public radio station or the head of a news organization is vastly different today than it was a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. That's right. It used to be enough to just report the news and then go home. And now the work never ends. Every Friday, a group of subscribers is led through our newsroom and, and toured through the newsroom, and, and I step out Did of my win, little... Did they win a prize for this? Is this like a, a, <laughs> or they lose a prize? A, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, won, yeah, they won yeah, or they, lost something, but is they... Is this first place or last place in the contest? These are people who want to know what happens at the, at the paper, so they come right. in, and somebody leads them through the room, and I, I come out of my little glass cage, and I tell them, here's what's going on today. This is what we're thinking about at the Dallas Morning News. How long have you been a subscriber, and so forth. So, uh, I mean, to Debbie's great point, um, our job now is to get people to come to the work rather than to just sort of put it on their driveway and if they're lucky we'll get a right. we'll give them a letter to the editor at some point we're trying to push the information out to them be available to answer questions and get them closely engaged in fact for us we, we declare areas of emphasis on the editorial side and one of our three areas of emphasis for this year is civic engagement civic engagement is civic engagement the same necessarily as reader engagement do you have an obligation only to engage paying customers or do you feel an obligation to engage the entire city the entire city absolutely yeah. i mean yeah. for same. us it's about yeah, yeah it's, it's gotta about, be the... you know it's about readers and it's about it's not just about voting it's about um, volunteerism and and you know being involved in community events and and causes right. the, th the theory of the case debbie is that if you give people information they'll be motivated to civic uh, participate civically if you don't give them information they won't if you do give them information, they're not obligated to do it, but they have a greater likelihood of doing it if they're given the means to connect with this stuff. Right. Right. I, I think so, the means to connect, but also um, the, you know, feeling the emotional pull of 
connection. Yeah, I'm interested in Mike saying, you know, not just voting, but volunteering. I, you know, it's easy at election time to understand the importance of the press's role here. We had, you know, rex- extraordinary turnout in the last midterm election. Right. 3.7 million more people voted in the midterm election of 2018 in Texas mm-hmm. than voted in 2014. We had more people vote in the midterm last time than voted in the presidential election of 2012. That is not supposed to happen. And Texas is a terrible state in terms of voter turnout. So this was really an anomalous situation. And I have to believe that at election time, Debbie, the press plays a role in that. Because the information that we put out there about candidates and about issues and about uh, particular races is a way for people to get connected to that process, right? At election time. That's right. Um, I think that, you know, there are stories that we can do that can turn people off. From voting, and there sometimes by simply just reporting what people that's in, right in, in elections know, say. Some things it's really you, them turning them off, but we're the vehicle for them to be turned off, right? Right. Yeah. Sometimes you have to do that, but there are also things that we can do if we can really connect uh, to an issue that matters to somebody that will will get them motivated. I think in a way that goes beyond. Well, you know, I don't like either of these guys, so I don't care. If you can really get down to the particular issues that are hitting that person's you know, pocketbook or household in right. some way. But of course, at election time, it's a little easier. And during a legislature, five months when we get these guys here in Austin to cover what they do, mm-hmm. it's the white space, the negative space, when there's not an election, when there's not a legislature, when they think up the street and in state government existentially, no one's watching and they try to sneak out the back of a building with a refrigerator strapped to their hips, right? That's kind of when our jobs become most important, but when it's also probably hardest to get people to pay attention organically, is it not? I think so. It's, it's hard to get them to pay attention to things they don't already care about, but uh, if, there, if there are issues like education, taxes, and so forth that they're always engaged in, and you can catch the person with the refrigerator on the back, um, that's always a great story, uh, whether the legislature's in or not. But we have to report the news when there's news and when there's not news. That's right. Right. I mean, weirdly enough, when yes. it's it's the it, it, that, that to me is the hardest thing is this watchdog work that we all are committed to doing at a moment when people's attentions are not on the process. Right. But but those are the stories that really are going to matter the most because people, I mean, people understand they need to vote and they're making a decision to vote or not. People understand that they need to be involved in certain issues. People don't always understand. Um, what's going on with you know the state uh, for-profit companies that are working um, on the Medicaid Medicaid system right now, which you know highly um, complex, granular. Right. Some people go gray thinking about that stuff, but it's no less important. And um, you know, as the series from the Morning News pointed out, you can there are a lot of systemic problems that uh, the legislature needed to address, and they're doing that right now. They're starting to address some of those. Um, Other stories, you know, that others have done, you know, the statesman, we did the the daycare series. Correct. That the state is now looking at, the legislature is now looking at some regulatory issues there. All of the the press, you know, in that off period is looking for what are the issues that need to be fixed in the state. But the the difficulty just to go to this for a second, I want to come back to the connection to voting and civic engagement here after, but to stay with what you just said, the Dallas News series, David McSwain, Andrew Chavez, and the team at the News, Pain and Profit series, is a great example of the possibility and the promise of journalism in the public interest having an impact Mm -hmm. and changing the way business Mm -hmm. is done. 
but unfortunately, because of all of our, our situations, all of us in this world, whether you're for-profit or non-profit, whether you're state-focused or not, resources are limited, bandwidth is limited, the world is different than it used to be, that is the exception that proves the rule, right? I think that's right. It's, it's an yeah. anomalous situation yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And it must have been, from your perspective, uh, a real uh, uh, long time to get to the point where you were willing to commit to doing, you know, it's not an easy thing to commit as a newsroom leader to, to giving over the time and the resources, human and financial, to do something like that. Yeah, you're placing a big bet on a story, and you have to have a lot of faith in the journalists who are bringing the story to you that, that they're going to be able to deliver on it. That said, I think, you know, uh, Debbie and I would agree that we don't want to be doing this, and you don't want to be doing this, Evan, if we don't place those bets, and if we don't do, at right. least attempt serious journalism in the public interest. And yeah. uh, we'll go do something else. If, if, it, if it has to all be about clicks, then none of us right. really Well, and also, yeah. if you don't know that something is going to work, you still have to be willing to try it in the hope that it will. And risk aversion, I would argue, is the thing that is killing the business of journalism and news as much as anything because people are afraid of their shadows. Mm -hmm. They don't want to try something that they don't know 100% is going to work. And you sometimes got to try things that won't work in service to greatness, right? And accept the fact that it it might not work. I mean, this is the point about, about voter turnout. Last point on this is that You know, we are in some respects the last line of defense against the collapse of our democracy. If we don't go out and try to get people interested enough to participate, then it goes back to being that city council race where a thousand people decide. If you look, as I've done, I'm sure you've done this in some fashion as well, at the number of people who vote in primaries versus the number of people who vote in general elections, it is a subset of a subset of a subset. In the absence of a higher turnout general election, you are ceding control of the state for, for four years to the people who vote in a Republican primary more often than a Democratic primary in Texas of late. And that's like some crazy small number. And it's not partisan of us in the news business to want more people to participate because God knows people in elective office talk about wanting there to be more representative democracy, more participation. We in some ways are the means for that to happen. Well, and more and more that's happening on the local level, on the county level in particular, where um, those decisions I mean, it's been that way a long time in Travis County, but in a lot of other counties where, you know, one, the primary is deciding who is going to be the district attorney for the next four years. Four years, years right. Um, some, you know, some pretty critical roles that are being yeah. decided by very few people. And I can tell you that, you know, in my time um, at the newspaper, the coverage of those primaries at the local level, just by the nature of... Um, business resources was less and less, especially for outlying counties, right. as, as we went on. And, and that's the thing that scares me the most. I'm not worried about democracy at a national level. Well, I am for a lot of different reasons, but um, I, I am most worried about democracy at the local city council, county, um, school board level, because those are the, the areas where People don't have the ability to go out and find out as much about the candidates. Those are the areas where the candidates don't have as much ability to get their message out. Right. Um, and that leaves the press. And if the press isn't there, then, yeah. you know. And, and when, Mike, you have corruption at the local government level, as you have had recently in Dallas, alleged, right? And you've got uh, people who are serving in public office who are trading on that public office for private gain. Um, one of the byproducts of not keeping eyes fixed on local government from the media perspective is those guys feel like they're operating in an era of no consequences and they try to get away with a bunch of stuff. That's right. And um, 
it's a concern for us. I went back and looked at our uh, budget document from 1999 because I was for a presentation I was making about changes in local news. And you know, we had local news bureaus in many communities around the Dallas area. Yeah, two or three reporters covering these small city governments. Right. And, you know, none of these regional institutions has the resources to do that now. So we're trying to do it through uh, sort of spot. Uh, investigations uh, within communities, but uh, you do have the sense that in communities where we are not at the city council mem- uh, meeting every week or every month, uh, that uh, you know there's uh, you have leaders acting with impunity. Well, it's refrigerator on hip territory every yeah. day, oh, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. How, do you have a sense of how big the morning news was ten years ago versus how it is now? The newsroom, what the decline has been? Uh, I know from twenty years ago, it's um, it, it's one third the size of, size that it was twenty years ago. So the Dallas Morning News newsroom. News gathering operation is one third. It was one third the size it was twenty years ago. Yes. Do you have a sense when you left the statesman what the change had been in twenty years or some? Uh, yeah, since since around two thousand, it it is um, less than half of what it was at of, that time. Of what it had been. Yeah. I mean, you do wonder whether you can accomplish what you want to accomplish, all the ambitious goals and ends that you have in mind, and serve the public with so few reporters. Our friends Zahira Torres, who is running the El Paso Times now, nineteenth largest city in America a community of seven or 800,000 between the city and the county and a readership potentially of more than a million is down to something like seven reporters, five if you don't count sports. How do you cover a top 20 American metropolitan community with that few reporters? I mean, at that point, you have to make choices. And there's a lot of stuff that you're not going to cover, Mike, right? Right. And I mean, I've, I've begun referring to our newsroom as a newsroom of choice, where we used to see ourselves as a newspaper of record for the Dallas community, one that would purport to cover every government, every interest area for people. We are now saying we're making strategic choices about what we think matters most to our community. And Zahira has that, you know, has that challenge you know, tenfold. And, and I'm afraid I don't know the name of the person who's now the editor of the Star-Telegram, but that's the 15th largest city in America. And yeah. probably in right. Fort Worth, there's a conversation more akin to the one happening in El Paso. Where did all of our reporters go? Yeah. It's, a, it's a hard deal. It, it's interesting, you know, as, as we're looking at our strategy, our growth strategy at, at KUT, you know, public radio is growing um, and we, we have a great opportunity to do that here. One of the things KUT has been able to benefit from is not having to be the media of record, being able to you pick, are media of choice. I think Mike's right. phrase is a great phrase. Quite a bit, right? Um, it's a great phrase. And you know, we're asking ourselves the question of as resources with other media go down and our resources go up, at what point are we obligated to the community to then become the media of record? Right. Um, if which, the statesman, your old employer, stops covering something, there's an opportunity if you choose to to be the one who covers that thing. That's, that's right. With the knowledge that now, if you don't cover it, it won't get covered. That's right. We, in some ways, that's an opportunity and a burden. You know, we, we just posted for a full-time transportation reporter, which is something KUT had not had for quite some time. Oh, you don't need that. Getting around Austin <laughs> is easy. Come on. Why scooters. do you even need a truck? Don't even get me started on the <laughs> damn scooters. But, 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 like, but you're right. I mean, that's something that you're doing in part probably in response to the need, but also in that's response right. to the opportunity created by the lack of coverage of that. That's right. Of elsewhere. You mentioned Pew before, the most mm-hmm. recent Pew stuff. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Pew last fall. Four things that I'm obsessed with that were findings in this wide-ranging study that Pew did of the public's attitudes about the press. 68% of those polled think that the press favors one side or another. By the way, the partisan breakdown on that was 86% of Republicans believe that, only 52% of Democrats. But think about that. A majority of Democrats who are supposedly so in love with the press that they would marry us, right? Right. Liberal media. Mm -hmm. 
52% of Democrats told Pew that they think that the media favors one side. Maybe they think they favor their side. That's why they think it's so good. 21% um, of people polled said they had a lot of trust in the national media. Only one in five. So four in five said they did not have trust in national media. That was 36% of Democrats said they had a lot of trust. Only 12% of Republicans said it. 68% of people polled said they thought the news media covered up its own mistakes. That's the one that I was gobsmacked about. Mm. Did they think that we actually are like pretending when we don't make mistakes that we didn't make them? I think it depends who you mean by we. And, and I think that their mistrust well, in the national media. Well, the, yeah, but so what does that mean? Their, their mistrust in the national media is maybe well placed if you're talking about um, certain. Well, TMZ. Cable. You know, you know, talk fests. David and, Pecker's operation? You sure. Know? I mean, so, you know, what? I guess I want to define our terms a little bit. No, I get that. But I just yeah. like the fact that it's, I mean, look, it's easy to be a kind of, you know, rend your garments at the, at the high level of this. And then yeah. the last thing I love is 58% of people polled thought in this last Pew poll that news organizations did not understand people like them. I actually thought that gets to your yeah. point about the community connection. That's right. They don't see themselves reflected in the paper. Is the, uh, how much of this have we brought on ourselves? Do they have a point that some of these things are things that we should own, that we have problems and we all talk about how we have economic distress and we have public distrust and all that, but maybe some of, maybe we own our own shit, honestly. Oh, I, I think we do in a lot of cases. Um, not all of them, but I, I think we do. Uh, when decisions were made about, as resources got smaller, when those decisions were made, um, a lot of newspapers, a lot of other media, uh, you know, the first thing they cut, frankly, was marketing and outreach. And if people don't understand what you do and why you do it and how you do it, and you're not out in the community, then um, of, of course they're going to come to their own conclusion. Yeah. So I think that's a piece of it when it comes to um, perceptions of the media. Right, that's the connection part. That's being that's able right. to see yourself. I mean, the trust part, Mike, is extraordinary to me because do people in the world, I mean, I do have to ask myself this question from time to time. Do people in the world think that the entire news business is a conspiracy, that we're all getting together in our newsrooms thinking, how can we screw people in government? How can we screw the press? How can we write a bunch of fake shit? And just like, is there a business model? I mean, like, what, what do they think we're doing? <laughs> I think on the political fringes, there's that attitude. Uh, but, you yeah. know, in my correspondence with readers, I find that they may come at me with that point of view, but if I respond reasonably and, and give my reasoning, that it turns into a normal conversation where maybe the person has a different... Uh, political leaning from whatever editorial said, right? But but yeah, it's um, uh, I, I think it's I think that's a fringe problem that they think that it's a conspiracy. It's a fringe problem, but it is not the fringe people with tinfoil on their heads or Alex Jones who are saying mm -hmm. fake news all the time to all of us. It's the president of the United States. It's the lieutenant governor of Texas. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's elected officials in our capital, members of Congress. The reality is, fake news means something. The word fake right. has a definition. And that means inaccurate, that means false. And to your point, when people say fake news and you say back to them, well, what exactly in this is wrong? It turns out that actually they don't like the story that you wrote. It's not that it's inaccurate, they just don't like it. Or they would have written a story differently mm -hmm. if they had written it themselves, or they wish you hadn't written it. Right. But there's nothing they can point to, Debbie, directly that is wrong. T typically, right? and, and when they do, um, those of us in legitimate news media, we, we cop to we, it. We correct it. Right. And we uh, correct it often as visibly as the mistake was made itself, right? It's one thing to make a mistake right. on A1 and correct it on C23. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we try to be reasonable about that, right? Well, we, you know, we ran uh, A1 corrections in my time at the Statesman at different times. And I think that 
frankly, I think that is part of, uh, leads into that perception in some ways because people see corrections and they think that somehow means something bad about us when I've always seen papers that own up to their mistakes and news organizations that own up to those mistakes that obviously that's a, a good thing because yeah. there are a lot of news media out there. I don't know if a lot is fair, but there are you know news organizations out there that don't do that. It's not a part of their DNA. Yeah. Well, you know, Mike, that's one of the knocks against us that I actually think has some legitimacy is that we're too arrogant. We're not humble enough. We are flawed like everybody else. Mm-hmm. We make mistakes like everybody else. We're good journalists and bad journalists. We're good lawyers and bad lawyers. We're good teachers and bad teachers. Maybe we should all get a $5,000 pay raise, by the way, all of us. Yeah, right. Not just <laughs> teachers, but lawyers and journalists. That's right. Um, there are good ones of us and bad ones of us, and the fact is some of us are going to make mistakes, and we ought to acknowledge those mistakes humbly and not be arrogant about it. And I think probably yeah. there's a defensiveness on the part of some people in the news when they make mistakes to say, well, sure. I didn't actually make that... We probably can do better on that, can't we? I think so. And I mean, it's amazing that any of us are arrogant because this business is so humbling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right uh, now that, where it's on yeah, the backs absolutely. of our heels, right? right? What is there so, to be arrogant uh, about? Yeah, so, right? I mean, I think that, you know, we are, and that, that has been a good thing for us probably as an industry to, mm-hmm. to, to have that uh, come up and to realize that we need to listen to what readers say and communicate back to them and, and <clears throat> really take their point of view into uh, into. Uh, consideration because as again when I started this it was we were the sort of gods on the mountaintop who dropped the truth on your doorstep every morning right. and now we have a we've been taken down a few our, pegs absolutely we, as far as that goes do you think that the charge Mike and Debbie that the press is biased or the press is partisan in some way back to that Pew statistic mm-hmm. but you don't need a statistic to know that we hear it all the time press is biased is that a misunderstanding of the distinction between the news pages and the editorial pages primarily or is there something else there is there something pernicious in our newsrooms that is causing people to think that, or is there a perniciousness outside of the news business that is laying that frame over all of us because it's in the interest of issue activists and partisans out here to make us seem like the problem? What do you What do you think is going on? Uh, you know, I, I think a good bit of it is the latter um, that there are people outside of the news media that you know they benefit from painting the news media a particular way. But I do think that there are times when we shoot ourselves in the foot. Um, I'm, you know, social media has been, I think, problematic at times for newsrooms because there's there's just a lot of loose talk that goes on. on so social individual media. brands under the umbrella of the institutional brand, individual reporters, might be on social media a little bit too spicy, a little bit too personal in their points of view, and coming across mm-hmm. as partisan not meaning to be, but maybe kind of meaning to be, right? Mm-hmm. And well, that, that ultimately reverberates back badly to the institutional brand. Yeah, and without, um, without having the context that they always have in their reporting to explore an issue, sometimes people in social media will, um, you know, will, will do the hot take, will take a, a swing at something in a way that doesn't provide the background that... Uh, that we, we demand in the actual reporting. Right, you know, Mike, live by individual brands, die by individual brands. The fact is there was a time when individuals at news organizations were told the only brand that you hold up is the institutional brand. That's right. Then all of a sudden there was a shift and now individual brands are the rocket boosters that power institutional brands. And you have a bunch of wonderful reporters who I follow on social media and who I find as personalities, as voices to be mm-hmm. very compelling. And it brings me closer to the Dallas Morning News. 
But there's a third rail aspect of that, is there not? There is, in fact. So um, I made Robert Wolanski a columnist slash reporter. I can't believe all these years ago, right? we're still later we're still talking about Robert Wolanski, yeah. but go on. So, so I mean, Wolanski <laughs> covers the city of Dallas and has a column. And so he may be straddling that line any given day on what, you know, what's his point of view and what is news coverage. And we just ask readers to accept that and to parse it. Uh, but his, his personality, his brand is very important to the Dallas Morning News to the point where he has a, now has a new, uh, the most Dallas newsletter ever uh, that goes out under his name. And he has a robust following on social media that ultimately benefits the Dallas Morning News, but you have to probably tell him or remind him or other reporters at the Dallas News and at KUT, a statesman yeah. before that, at the Tribune, Watch it, yeah. because you may make a distinction between your personal Twitter feed and our institutional Twitter feed, but the public doesn't necessarily. All they know is you're a reporter for the Texas Tribune or the American Statesman or the Dallas News getting mouthy on Twitter, sometimes about a subject that you cover. It's one thing to say, I think the Allman Brothers suck if you're a political reporter. <laughs> it's another thing to have a point of view about the governor mm -hmm. or something that the governor said, right. and you may think you're being funny. We're probably all guilty of this. But it's, it's not a good look, Debbie, is it? Right. And, and that's the thing we have to watch out for because we view those things in the context of all of the very fair reporting that, uh, that our reporters do and all of the things that they do to make sure they're right as they go out and you know, distribute the, the news. But people that are seeing it in just that context, all they see is oh, this reporter made this really snarky comment about right. the governor, and see, that's it. Should, should, and you have to remember what your job is, right? I mean, I'm, I'm mindful of um, Marty Barron, our friend and colleague Marty Barron, the editor of the Washington Post's comment around the time that the president started hate-tweeting at the media, our job is not to go to war, our job is to go to work. His right. point was don't engage with the people on social media who attack you, simply do journalism and remember that that's what you're there to do. And there's a version of that that applies in this case. You don't fight with people you cover on social media. Right. Don't get drawn into these things. That's, that crosses a line from being a reporter to really being a troll, mm -hmm. yep. right? You're, you're lowering yourself to a place where it's ultimately doing harm to the institution. I think you can, you can lower yourself to that place, but I also think there are times when it is um, necessary to... Uh, combat certain narratives that are put out there. Give oh, me an yeah. example. An example is um, the president has been uh, utterly exonerated and the New York Times and Washington mm -hmm. Post should give back the Pulitzers that they won for yeah. reporting about the administration. Well, all of that reporting stands up. Not one bit of the reporting that they right. did has been challenged or refuted. You know, three dozen, right. three dozen indictments right. out of that right. investigation that they covered and much of what we know about what's gone on in the last couple of years and the preceding years is because of journalism. Right. We so, wouldn't know it but for that, right? And, and, I, and I think it's okay to say that in a nonpartisan, no, wait a minute, these are the facts. Right. Well, but, but it's one thing, sure. though, to take on the challenge to the press. It's another thing to say, you know, to, to attack Lieutenant Governor Patrick for something that right. he does in his administration mm -hmm. of the Senate, if you're a, you'd acknowledge. I would it's absolutely it's acknowledge Some that, kind of a yeah. distinction. Do you think, Debbie, that the economics simply no longer work for the for-profit press? You've now jumped out of the building at the end of the movie like Bruce Willis before it exploded, so you can be honest about it. I, I can be honest, and, and yeah, I don't, see, I don't see how it will work. Um, it's still working in some places. I don't see for local and regional news how it'll, it will continue to work. And, um, and by it, you mean the three-legged stool of, it was traditionally been a reader revenue through the circulation right. door, display advertising, and classifieds. That old model has been totally That's right. disrupted. 
That's right. And, you know, I think that newspapers uh, are doing, you know, a lot of newspaper companies are doing a really good job of trying to find alternate revenue and, right. and trying to figure those things out. But most of them are still, especially the larger companies, are still uh, very much built on a for-profit model that promises something to investors as opposed to promising to reinvest in the product and the community, and that's the problem. And often the way that that promise is realized, Mike, is through the cutting door, not the expanding door, right? Yes, I mean, these companies that, such as mine that are you know, publicly traded companies need to be profitable. They have a fiduciary duty to shareholders, and so if yep. the revenue doesn't justify uh, a profit, then that profit has to be attained through uh, expense reduction. You know, you're, you're working for a publicly traded company. Peace and blessings on you. And at the same time, it is really still a family concern, yeah, is right. it not? It is. Yeah. And it is unusual to find family concerns in the media business. The days of the Chandlers and the Grams and the Sulzbergers, I mean, I guess the Sulzbergers are still running the paper, mm -hmm. but it's a little bit more akin to what you're doing. It's yes. a public trade company. The, the idea that there's this sort of, you know, benevolent family-held, you know, structure in place, the, the, it's more Gatehouse, which purchased yep. your newspaper, um, is an operator. They operate, you know, Gannett, McClatchy. It's more, it's, it tends more to be in that yeah, realm, does it yeah, not? It, yeah. And there's a little bit more peril, let's be candid about mm -hmm. it, in that realm. I think that's right. I mean, my answer to the question you asked Debbie is, you know, so she jumped out of the building. Well, I'm Bruce Willis, and I'm still in the building with my feet bloody. Uh, <laughs> right, but you uh, typically but, in those movies save everybody, so right, thank so, you right, for that. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, and right, so yeah. here's, here's how we want to do it, is we want to get uh, people to to pay a modest sum for local news that's of value to them and uh, have that sustain a reasonably sized newsroom that can continue to serve uh, the people of, uh, of Dallas, Texas. Now, uh, the size of that newsroom uh, is undetermined and exactly you know, how deep people will go into their own pockets mm -hmm. to pay for this, we're not sure, but we think that there is going to be in the long term a place for uh, modestly profitable media to serve communities like ours. Yeah, but long term and is a ways away, Debbie. And the fact is, Mike's newsroom recently had a reduction in size. Uh, some attrition and some people were unfortunately uh, told, off. you know, I, I'm trying to be more generous you. about yeah, it. Than you. you experienced this at the American That's Statesman, right. did you not? I mean, most places I know have had some version or several versions of right. this. And can you really hold on until that long term that Mike's talking about when all this stabilizes? Well, in long term, I do think some papers may be able to to convince their community of, you know, this is worth the investment because it is a reinvestment in the community. I think in the case of the Dallas Morning News, the money that goes into the Dallas Morning News often comes back into Dallas. I mean, it is it is community owned in the sense of the family is there. Um, there are investors, but at least it is a Dallas company. Um so many of these of the papers now are owned by companies that are so far from the communities they, they the serve. companies have no connection that's right, right. and and the money that um, that comes out from these papers that are still profitable by the way and <laughs> in, in uh, certainly in the case of the statesman it's very profitable paper but that money is going away as opposed to being reinvested back in the product or the community at the level that um, that it used to be let me ask you about a couple of changes here as we wind down in the world that we're in. Um, I've noticed, I wonder if you've noticed, that elected officials who we cover at the legislature and at the state level, but not just there, are on to us. 
they realize that our businesses are more challenged than they were once upon a time. And they also realize that social media, which is both a blessing and a curse all at once, provides them a channel to reach the people they need to reach directly, where once upon a time they had to go through us to reach those people, and so they cut us out of the equation. They don't engage with us. Mm -hmm. There are statewide elected officials who, in the years they've been in office, and some of them now through full terms and into second terms, will routinely not engage with us. Because they go, why would we talk to the fake news media? Why would we talk to the lamestream media? That's an interesting development, is it not, Mike? It sure is. Uh, I think it's. You um, experience a version of that? We, yeah, we have. We certainly have. And uh, I think it's a, not a great thing for, uh, in some ways, for their constituencies, for them to not have any accountability to a, what I think are honest brokers uh, uh, like us. I also, though, have seen that approach not work. Uh, there's some sort of notable North Texas legislators who don't have jobs now who had that. Uh, who had that approach, and they've been replaced by people who have a more, and I'm not saying that's, you know, they, they won because they're better with the press, but I think that maybe that accessibility to the public and, um, you know, more of a sense of what the larger public wants uh, made, a, uh, made a big difference in those campaigns. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to be worried as much about people who love the press. You know, John McCain's great joke when he was alive, the late, late John McCain, he would be giving a speech, he would talk about my base, the, you know, the press, right. by which I mean my, my base, you know. Right. For every person who doesn't talk to the press, there are the people who talk to the press too damn much, and I wish they would lose right. my phone number, right? Or all of our phone numbers. But 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 it is it is a phenomenon these days. You know, if you have, I mean, let's. I'm going to call out specifically. You know, um, the attorney general would be an example of somebody who, yeah. you know, while I will occasionally turn on the television and see the improbable occurrence of him talking to Katie Turr on MSNBC, right? It's harder than it should be to get access to the attorney general himself through the traditional press door. That's right. And it's not like we here at least don't ask. I'm sure it's not like, you know, you all don't ask. Uh, and I'll pick him out, but he's one of a couple we could name. Sure. What do we think about that? What do we do about that? And how does that or does that not impede our ability to hold people in power accountable? Well, I... I mean, I, I think it's a problem because I think that what uh, what people expect from those elected officials is that they are available and accessible to the public in that way. And I don't mean in accessible to the public in the way that they tweet and they right. might send out their press releases. Go on Newsmax and say, I've done the media. That's it. Right. I, I'm, my obligation is completed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Um, you know, does it hinder the journalism that we do? Sure, it does to some extent, but that kind of journalism responding to um, press releases or having those kinds of um, you know interactions, that's that's not always the best journalism we do anyway. Yeah. Right. And there's, I think this this has become a broad strategy for politicians too to have their own media operation, their own outreach. And if you think about Obama, he was happy to sit between two ferns with Zach. Galpinakis, mm -hmm. but not so happy to sit with a real journalist and ask, right. you know, answer a lot of questions about his policies. Right. I mean, in some ways, weirdly, despite what you might think from the way people grumble and grouch about the White House press operation, this president has had more media avails, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes under helicopter blades yes. or, you know, sitting with the prime minister of Slovenia, but nonetheless has answered quite, I mean, there haven't been formal White House press briefings as many, 
but this president has maybe been more available in some respects than the last president. I think that's a great point. Isn't that right? To the point of the White House press briefings, people, you know, oh, the worst news in the world, there are fewer White House press briefings. But isn't access overrated? I mean, isn't the flip side of this conversation, Debbie, that access journalism is part of the problem? I don't know that it's part of the problem, but it's it's not a solution. Yeah. I mean, it it is it's not going to provide the kind of information that really tells the public what's going on. Yeah. And and so it, it could be lazy for it could be lazy to have that access sure. in place of true watchdogging of people, can it not? Yes. It yeah. certainly can. Yeah. Is one of the economic answers here more collaboration among news organizations? You know, there was a competitive set conversation that took place long ago where the Dallas Morning News was in competition with the Houston Chronicle, which was in competition with the Austin American Statesman, which was in competition at the time that I was running it with Texas Monthly, and we'd all be nice and respectful to one another, and then the minute you all turned your backs, it was like, up yours, buddy, you know. Right. <laughs> um, I tend to think now that we have no competitors. We only have current and yeah. future collaborators. Mm-hmm. It's either hang separately or survive together this time. At, at, is, do, you, do you see it that way? Very much so. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I think if you look across the industry, it's become necessary for us to join forces to get some bigger things done. And if you look actually back at the list of the Pulitzer Prizes over the last six or seven years, joint, joint investigations are such a feature of the, some of the best journalism that's being done. I think we've put aside our, our weapons and decided, hey, what can we do together? Yeah, and it's the same. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the things that I, I told my new newsroom as the GM over at KUT was uh, one of the first questions they asked, of course, was, well, will we be collaborating more with the statesmen? And I said, I would like us to collaborate more with everyone. With everybody. Because to me, um, the people of Austin don't care necessarily who is bringing that local news to them, that local news and information, as much as knowing what the information is. They may not be looking at the byline. I can't tell you that when I was growing up or I was a young professional getting my uh, acclimation in the world of reading the news every day, that I was looking at a newspaper and thinking, that's an Associated Press story. That's a New York Times syndicate story. That's a, it, sure. it, it's all, it's kind of it's all the same. It's news. Yeah. And I, I remain, you know, really concerned about the other local news organizations in right. Austin. And I don't want to do anything that harms them. And so I've, I've got to look at, as we grow, what are the ways that we can grow that actually might help them or lift them some with right. their audience as well. And that gets to a really interesting point here, and that is that we are not only in the business of collaborating on reporting, but we also have, I mean, let's have kind of a hug it out moment for the three of us here, <laughs> is, is that we're also in the business of supporting one another That's right. off the page. Mm-hmm. When Andrew Chavez and David McSwain do pain and profit, it is our responsibility at the Texas Tribune to celebrate the, the Dallas Morning News' work to amplify their work. When KUT does amazing news reporting, it is our responsibility, obligation, to amplify KUT's best work because the fact is good journalism is good journalism is good journalism. And good journalism will save us, I think, has to be our affect about this, regardless of who produces it, right? I do, I think so. And 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 if I can inject a little bit of light into the the sort of financial gloom of the industry, I've seen newsrooms diminish for my whole 35-year career. You know, there are fewer reporters than there used to be, flat out, and it's not good for America, it's not good for journalism. But I think we are coming to a point where people in some of these communities are saying, oh, geez, I, I actually can't imagine life without you guys. I, and, and that is a nonpartisan or yeah. across partisan lines. I have people say to me, you know, I didn't like what you wrote, but I, I know we need you because we just wouldn't be the same way. And at you. the national level, Debbie, how many times have we heard national news brands, institutions and individuals call out for appropriately 
praising local news reporters who broke stories at the, notion, at the local level that then became national stories. Right. Right? Celebrating, I mean, the, our, so downstream from us and upstream from us, we're both hearing maybe this acknowledgement that there's good work being done? Oh, yeah. Right? I, think, I think that is the case across the industry. I think there's a lot of concern about how things are happening on the local level and what yep. everyone can do to lift that up. Can you say yes with a straight face to young people who ask you whether this is a good career to go into or profession to go into? Absolutely. Are you saying it more enthusiastically today than you did five years ago? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What's your sense? There's never been a better time to tell stories in the history of storytelling uh, because of the tools we have, uh, the, the access to the audience. There's never been a worse time to try to make a living at it. Uh, and so that's, that's the challenge that people face. So my two children who became journalists with no coaching in either direction from me, right. I think are in for a thrilling but uncertain ride. Your daughter seems really nice. Your, your son, I could take or leave. Yeah, he's not. I, I, we, we, I don't want to talk about him. <laughs> yeah. You haven't met problems. my kids, yeah. so. You don't uh, need to I know there. your kids through social media, which is where we know one another's kids across America, and right. they seem really, really great, but they're not yet at a point of choosing this career. If, if Jasper or Viola come to you and they say, they, what, what do I do? Uh, do I want to go into journalism or not? I, I would be thrilled. I would also think more about how long am I going to need to save money to make sure that they're, they're not poor, starving well, artists. I've got a son who now is going to college next year and has chosen to go to the University of Texas, to Moody College, to go into journalism. And we've had this conversation, and I, I've tried to be realistic in talking to him about this mm -hmm. and to say to him, be sure that you go to a school that has other things if this doesn't work for you or you don't work for it. But I will tell you personally, I don't have a problem telling people at this point to go into journalism. I look at the smart young people we have working in our newsroom the same way that you do, Mike, in yours, and you do, Debbie, in yours, and I think they're going to save all of us, right? I do, too. You feel good about the yeah. future. That's I, it. I yeah. feel inspired, and, and that's one of the great things about you know, KUT being set in the Moody College there is I am surrounded by students, journalism students, who are looking at things in a completely different way from the way I did when I was a journalism student, and yeah. it's great. I mean, it's, it's really inspiring. Okay, well, we can all sleep at night. Thank you both. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. Thanks. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guests, Mike Wilson of the Dallas Morning News and Debbie Hyatt of KUT. And thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Texas State Technical College, and the Texas Hospital Association. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about it. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.